Good morning. I've done three funerals in as many weeks. And last night I spent the evening with a family as they watched their loved one take his, his last breaths. It, uh, it is always a, an honor to be there when people are at the end of their life, especially when the family calls you to be there with them. It's uncomfortable at first, but never say no, especially if you carry the gospel with you. I met this family through my wife, who is a nurse, an oncology nurse, and many people who go on to her floor do not leave. And Stephanie saw that the family um, was a Christian family, but that the family was, as all of us would be in that moment where life is fading away, that that family needed to talk with the pastor, and so she offered my services, and I was delighted to go, and last night I was there. I had only met the couple once, and everyone else in the room I was meeting for the first time, but they were believers, and so we sang hymns together, and I asked them if I could share a passage, but before I did, the wife of the man who was passing away said, I want to tell you something. She said, we had a lot of pastors come to see us over the last couple months, a lot. And all of them told us, pray, pray for your miracle. You have to believe that God will heal him, and if you believe, God will truly heal him. Keep praying, keep praying, your miracle's coming. She said, you were the only one who came in here and told us the truth about life. You were the only one who told us that the miracle may not come, but that God is still good. Do you know what the truth was that I told her? It wasn't something I made up. I just opened up my Bible. And I read to her Romans 8, 18, which says this. That the sufferings of this life are not worth comparing with the glories of the next. Christ has risen. And all who trust in him can have hope. That when their body ultimately fades away, you too will rise one day when he returns. Let's pray. Now, Father, this is your word, this is your work. I am but a man here with a Bible, and Lord, I ask that you do the work that only you can do. Holy Spirit, you have to open up hearts. You have to do the convicting, but it is through your word that you will do the convicting. We praise you, God, that you witness to the entire world that the man Christ Jesus was your man in the flesh, that God in the flesh came in the flesh to die in the flesh was raised bodily from the grave, has ascended unto the Father, and now at this very moment on the throne intercedes on all those who have faith in him on our behalf. And so we praise you for the work that you did in real time and in real space. It was a real event, a real resurrection, no figurative resurrection, but that that moment has meaning for everybody, everybody that lies in the grave, and everybody that will lie in the grave. Christ, you defeated death, and in you 
we have life and we praise you. Holy Spirit, there are hearts here this morning that are darkened, that are convinced that they are on their way to heaven because of their good works. It is my prayer that you would break that heart this morning, that you would take off the scales of that heart and the scales of their eyes so that they might see the glory of Jesus Christ and might confess his name for the salvation of their souls. Do your work, Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is going to be the shortest sermon I've ever preached. Why are you all laughing? Because it's April Fool's! Ha! You know I don't play that. If you came to church, I want you to get every penny's worth on that suit. Before we begin, I just got to say thank you to uh, everyone who was upstairs throwing down in the kitchen. Give them a round of applause. Sometimes I wonder if they're feeding their pastor or fattening me up for the sacrifice. They were cramming fish in every which pocket and, no, try this, man. You're going to love it, man. Yeah, no, that's, that's not how you do it. You do it over here in Trinidad like this. No, in Jamaica we do I said, that's collard greens. They said, that's not collard greens. That's callaloo. <laughs> I learned that callaloo is made from okra and collard greens are made from collard greens. <laughs> I, I don't know. It was good. It was really good. I had something called uh, bake. and Was it bake? What did you, what did you shove down my gullet, uh, Sam? What was that? Yolan. Well, you, is Yolan here? She's still upstairs cooking more. <laughs> well, it was fantastic. I don't normally eat fish for breakfast. You know, we eat chickens, uh, eggs. <laughs> fish is a dinner food, but I, I found out it's a breakfast food. It was delicious. Well, welcome uh, all of you who are visiting. I do want to invite you to uh, fellowship with us anytime that uh, you have free on a Sunday morning. If you don't have time free on a Sunday morning, make time to be free to be with us. We would love for you to be here. Well, I want to preach a sermon this morning, and the sermon is pretty straightforward. It is, what does Easter mean for you? And uh, I'm going to have a mock conversation between you, you, and me. So each and every one of you, we're going to have a mock conversation this morning. And I'm going to answer the question that all of us should be asking. Hopefully, we're all asking, why are we here? It's more than canary yellow suits and fake purple leather gator skins or whatever they are. I've never seen a purple alligator, so no, they're not real. I want to answer this question, what does Easter mean for you? Because the church celebrates Easter every Sunday. That's why we celebrate on Sunday and not Saturday. The Sabbath was the day of rest, and it takes place from sundown to sunup, and that's on Friday evening to Saturday evening. But the New Testament church does not celebrate that because we celebrate a risen Christ. We celebrate a victorious Christ, the Christ who himself claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. And therefore, this day that we celebrate once a week Sunday is a celebration of his victory over death. So I want to answer this question, what does Easter mean for you? It means five things, I believe, simplified the first thing that Easter means for you is that you have a Savior. Personally, you have a Savior. 
Your mother and your father have a Savior, but that has nothing to do with you. Their righteousness and their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is not your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a Savior. You will not get to heaven when you stand there. You will not enter into the kingdom of God by saying, my mother was a faithful or religious woman. God is going to simply say, yes, but what about you? I was your Savior. Did you receive me? The second thing Easter means for you is that you have a substitute. I remember when I was in high school and whenever I had a teacher who was particularly tough, I was always thrilled when they came in and said we had a substitute. Because that meant we could act bad. It doesn't quite mean that here. But it does mean that you were bad enough to need a substitute. And it is Christ that you need. You have a sacrifice. The Old Testament law required a sacrifice for sin. God knew that the moment that he gave his laws to a sinful people that they were going to sin. They were going to break those laws. And that's why in the very law that he gave them, he made provisions for their salvation through the shedding of innocent blood. And there would be times where thousands upon thousands of animals at the tent and at the temple would be sacrificed to atone for sins. But goats and bulls and turtle doves are not sinful. They haven't made this mess. The covenant that God made, he did not make with birds and with animals... He made with human beings those in whom he made his image to bear his image. And he made a covenant with them and they broke that covenant. And therefore it is incumbent that human beings reconcile and pay for that covenant in fidelity. But we have a sacrifice, a human sacrifice. You can. Notice the word there. You can have victory over death. And I also believe that Easter means something rather important for us today. It is this, that you do have a choice. I want to look at these five points today and explain to you what Scripture says. Number one, you have a Savior. You have a Savior. Isaiah 9, 6 a text that was written eight centuries before Jesus ever came to the earth. And by the way, the oldest extant manuscript, that is the oldest copy of Isaiah's prophecy, is 200 years written before Christ was ever born. Listen to what it says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah goes on to say that he shall sit on his father's throne, David's throne, forever. 
David had sons. And his sons had sons. And David's blood ran through their veins, but they were not eternal persons. Solomon died, Hezekiah died, Josiah died, but Christ reigns. And he sits on the throne this very moment, this very hour. Christ is alive. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. The wisdom of God in Christ is the greatest wisdom the world has ever known. And in fact, all wisdom pales in comparison to His. He is the Word, the wisdom made flesh. In Him we find the very meaning of life. The government shall be upon His shoulders. Praise God. Have you ever seen a human government that was run by human beings that was not terribly flawed? Even the kings and even the leaders of Israel were terribly flawed. Parents, never open up your Bible and read to your children, now go and be like Moses. Moses is not the hero of the Bible. Don't read to your children, be strong like Samson. Samson is certainly not the hero of the Bible. Don't tell them, be like David. David was a murderer. Quite possibly a rapist. But he was forgiven because he gave his life and trusted upon the name of the Lord. The government shall be on his shoulders. He is a righteous king. And he will rule perfectly. He is mighty God. This king is no ordinary human being. But is God himself. Jesus Christ was no mere man. Truly man. But also truly God. He is an everlasting father of our faith. And the very prince of peace. In his kingdom. And in his kingdom alone. We will have peace peace but then Luke tells us something about this person Luke is telling us a story in the gospel he's telling us a story that really happened there were shepherds who were watching their flock by night and he tells us that an angel appeared to these shepherds and he said this for unto you notice the connection with what Isaiah was saying for unto you, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Not only will God be the wonderful counselor, almighty God, Prince of Peace. He really came to earth 2,000 years ago. John said we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Father, full of grace and truth. This Savior has really come. You have a Savior. So you're asking then, what does that mean for me? People always say to me, how, yeah, but, but how is the Bible relevant to me in my life? Usually by that question, you mean something like, how will God be my God for me? How will God help me out? Now, I want to remind you about something. 
This does not equal this. God is no genie. You were made to worship and glorify Him. You were made in His image. He was not made in yours. The question is not, God, what will you do for me? The question is, God, how might I serve you? So what does this mean for me? Well, let me answer that question. It means that you have a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You have a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Paul tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The need for a Savior is because you have not measured up to God's standard. I'm sure many of you, if not most of you, if not all of you, are good people by the world's standards. I'm sure you pay your taxes on time. I'm not so sure that you keep the speed limit. Um, I'm sure that you don't always cuss. And I'm sh maybe when you're not keeping the speed limit. I'm sure that you have never murdered anybody. Maybe. Most of you. If not all of you. But the standard that you are going to be judged by is not... A, your own, and B, it's not the world's. You have to understand that truth, truth, when we begin to talk about truth, truth is absolute, but truth may change based upon a relative standard. If I, if I say, for instance, that I am tall, well, that is true relative to the standard height of man, which is about 5'10". I'm six feet, a little bit over six feet. So I'm considered tall, considerably and relative to the height of man. But if I use the word I am tall in reference to redwood trees, that would not be true. If I were a redwood tree, I stuck my nose out as high as I could, I wouldn't even reach its roots. And the Bible says you've sinned. The Bible says you are not good based upon God's standard. You have sinned and you fall short of the glory of God. So the standard that you have missed is God's. Do not waste my time or any other pastor's time by coming up and saying, I'm a good person. It is not the issue. God says you're not and that you have fallen short. And you need a savior. And because God is most gracious. He says this. But God has given to us his son. That the righteousness of God has now been revealed apart from the law. Righteousness that comes by faith. In Christ Jesus. All may receive God's glory through the man Christ Jesus. If you want to meet that standard today, you have to have Christ. And if you don't have Christ, you don't meet that standard. It is in Christ alone that you will meet God's glory. Only in Christ does God say we are forgiven. We are made righteous. He is our righteousness. You need to be saved. And Christ is the only Savior. 
Easter means for you that you have a substitute. You have a substitute. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. I can guarantee you this, you have not kept God's law perfectly. When the Pharisees were proud and they were the religious zealots of the day, the religious enthusiasts of the day, and they would even add laws to the, to the laws of God so as to be made more righteous in His sight. They were super, super religious. People tell me, oh yes, I'm very religious. That has nothing to do with whether or not you're saved. Buddhists are religious. Muslims are religious, but they deny Jesus Christ. And therefore, for all who deny Him, they are not. They are not. I said they are not saved. Just in case anyone leaves here today thinking that I think such. I want to make it very clear. Without Christ, you're not saved. Some of you say, I'm never coming back again. Well, I know some churches that will tell you that you can be saved by another way. They're liars. And they will be judged. It will be better. It will be better that they have a millstone tied around their neck than that they continue to lie to you. Christ alone is our salvation. But by that one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He obeyed the law we couldn't obey. So these Pharisees, they were so righteous and they stuck their chest out and they, they always brought their Bible to church. I used to could button this, so I'm trying to work Whoa, thanks for that extra fish, Sam. Somebody's like, it ain't fish that did that. I bring my Bible to church and I wear a suit to church. Well, God is impressed. Jesus wore sandals to church. You think he'll go to heaven? Jesus said, so you've never murdered anybody. But do you hate? Stop for a second. There's got to be somebody you hate. Think about the politicians you hate. They count too. I know, I know they're despicable, but they count too. Oh, I've never committed adultery. Have you lusted in your heart? You see, God sees your heart. He's not impressed by what you do on the inside. He knows your condition is sin. And the whole point to him giving a law is so that you might see you can't keep it. And when you see you can't keep it, then you know you need a savior. So that by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. I know it's unfair, so we think. It's unfair that Adam sinned, and so we all now inherit his sin. Fine, I'll concede the point. Even though I don't agree with it, it's bad theology, but I'll give it to you. So what? Because on the other hand, it's not fair that you get into heaven by another man's obedience. But that's what scripture says. So that by the one man's obedience, your faith in him will make you righteous. What does righteous mean? 
It means meeting that glory God says you haven't met. You have a substitute. What does that mean for me? It means that you have a Savior who has obeyed God's law perfectly. Your Savior is not just the person you happen to like. I went to meet a man one time who was in AA. And Alcoholics Anonymous, they, they tell you to seek a higher power. And so they, they really don't care which higher power you go after. Just so long as it works for you. But let me tell you something. The only power that will save you is the one who kept the law perfectly. Read the story of Muhammad. He didn't keep it perfectly. Read the story of Siddhartha. He didn't keep it perfectly. Haile Selassie did not keep it perfectly. But Christ did. And if you want to be saved, you have to have a perfect Savior. Paul says we are all condemned in Adam's sin. All of us are condemned, whether we like it or not. But we may be forgiven through the one man's obedience. Christ on our behalf was perfect and obeyed God's law. You have a sacrifice. The Bible says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin... That in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Israel you had to have a perfect lamb. A perfect sacrifice. Now that is a relative and a symbolic gesture. There weren't any perfect lambs. But Jesus was a perfect lamb. He was a perfect sacrifice. And they would have to lay the sins upon Israel. The, the priest would be a, a mediator between God and the people. And he would lay the sins on the scapegoat. And the scapegoat would go off into the wilderness. Presumably he would die. He's a sheep. And the Bible says that Christ bore our sin. For our sake, God made him to be sin. When did he make him to be sin? He made him to be sin on the cross. An innocent man died on that cross. Do you understand what a cross is? A cross was a symbol of torture. It was a symbol of rebellion. Not only was it to be kept, as one Roman historian said, to be kept from a Roman's body, it was to be kept from a Roman's eyes. The very word excruciate means out of the cross. It was an excruciating, horrific death. No, Jesus did not wear a loincloth on the cross. That's for our sensitivities. Jesus was exposed completely naked on a cross. Nailed there like a common criminal. The God... The Bible says who made the world, who made the universe, who made the very heart that beats inside those men's chest, who nailed him to the wood, that God, since all things are made by him, for him, and through him, by his word, that God subjected himself to the death penalty of his very own creation. 
God made him to be sin, who knew no sin. He was not sinful himself. He was a perfectly righteous person. But on the cross, he bore all our sins. Why? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The cross that we wear around our neck should remind all of us, should remind all of you that your sins were there on the cross. All of them. Christ is your sacrifice. Well, what does that mean for you? You have a sacrifice. That Christ became sin so that you might be blameless. No blame at you. You say, but I'm a, I, I'm, I may be a bad person. Yes, I know, but Christ isn't. And in your place, he is a perfect propitiation. Paul wrote in Colossians 1.21 and 22, And you who were once alienated, that means you were separated from God. God made this entire universe for you to in. To, to glorify Him and to enjoy Him and to be in fellowship with Him. The entire narrative of the Bible is how people might have fellowship with God. The only way to have fellowship with God is on His terms. And His terms are this. You must come through the shedding of innocent blood. Either yours or Christ. If you want to have fellowship with God. Christ became sin so that you might be blameless, so that you might be with him. You were once alienated and hostile in mind. You hated God. Someone said, well, I, I don't hate God. I just don't have time for him. That's hatred to God. There is no in-between. God will, the one thing God hates is indifference. Apathy about him. God hates Apathy about him. He is not the sort of person who you can be indifferent about. God made you to glorify and worship him. And when you are indifferent to him, it is hate for him. You were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. By the way, just in case you're doubting me. Read the church at Laodicea. Jesus literally says this. I see your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold. You're indifferent. They're apathetic. They got some friends for it, some friends against it, and therefore they're friends. That's their type of people. They're the politically correct church. They don't want to offend anybody. God knows if they offend anybody, the offering will be low. Well, so what? God doesn't want your money. He's not cheap. He wants your soul. He wants your life. Your money's going to be burned up with your body, but he wants your soul. Jesus says about those types of Christians who are neither hot nor cold, those people who are indifferent, who are apathetic about me, who come some Sundays when it's convenient, who do me, who do work instead of me, but say they love me. All of those who say they love me and did they not do great things in my stead, he says, they make me want to throw up. That's what he says. He says, you're like lukewarm water. You're neither hot nor cold, and I want to throw up. You get the imagery. 
They serve two types of coffee at Dunkin', Dunkin' Donuts. Dunkin' Donuts, whatever. That's a bigger one. Dunkin' Donuts, they serve hot coffee or cold coffee. It's either hot or it's ice. But they don't sell lukewarm coffee because lukewarm coffee's gross. If you can drink lukewarm coffee, you got problems, okay? You need to see a therapist. It's either got to be hot or cold. And Jesus, just like you hate lukewarm coffee, Jesus hates lukewarm Christians. You make me sick. Choose a side. Which side are you going to be on today? Which side? Make a decision. My brother used to say, when he taught me how to drive, Amy probably remembers this, he'd say, when I got to a stoplight, dude, chocolate or vanilla? Either go or stop, but you can't make, you can't slowly speed through the stoplight. You either got to run it or you got to stop, but make the decision. You either got to go with Christ this morning or not, but stop playing this game of apathy. You will not stand in the judgment if you are apathetic about Christ. Christ, we did many things in your name. And in your name, didn't we do these great works and cast out demons? Then will I tell them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. You see, the workers of iniquity, they did everything on the outside. But they didn't love God. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You can have victory over death. The word can is the operative word. Because some of you may not have it. The Bible says this in Acts 1-3, Christ presented himself alive to his disciples after his suffering by many proofs. See, Christ did not simply raise and tell a story. He, he demonstrated for 40 days that he was alive. Men who were at one time afraid of him or afraid to be associated with him are now standing before the Sanhedrin saying, do with us, do with us what you will, even kill us. They have seen the resurrected Christ. People die for lies, but they don't, do, they don't die for lies that they know the truth of. And certainly those men would have known whether Jesus raised from the dead. No, they weren't hallucinating. They weren't at a raver. There wasn't 500 hallucinations at once. They saw him. That's why we stand here today. Why? Because listen to what he told them. He said this, receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Witnesses to what? They saw Christ raise from the dead. They knew the risen Savior. And we sit here today because of their witness that even led to their very death. That Christ is God in the flesh. And that all who believe in him shall be saved and will be raised from the dead. Be my witnesses. He says to Jerusalem, well, we're not in Jerusalem. And in Judea, we're not in Judea. And in Samaria, we're not in Samaria. But we are in the end of the earth. We are that geographically. We are that chronologically. We are as far as you can get. And here we sit, red and yellow, black and white. 
Hopefully, all of us hoping that just as Christ raised from the dead, we too will raise from the dead. You know all, do you know that all, all that Christianity is about is about news? That's all the gospel's about. The word is euangelion. It just means a message, a good tiding. Christ is risen. Christ is raised. Now what do you do with it? When you sit at a deathbed and you see a man taking his last breaths, what do you tell the family? I made it very clear to the family yesterday. I believe that that man's body that is going to die will be raised to incorruptible flesh. And I mean, he will be raised like the sun will rise tomorrow. That's what I mean. That's what they meant. That's why they took this life and didn't care what happened in this life. They understood there wasn't just one life to live. There was coming a resurrection. You can have victory over death. What does it mean for you? It means this, Christ has risen so that you might raise to live a new life. Romans 6, 5, and 8 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. All those waters in that baptismal pool do is symbolize your belief that you are in Christ and that it was his death that takes away your sins. But we don't hold you down forever. We pull you back up. And what do we say? Raised to walk in newness life. Many of you are holding on to a baptismal experience when you were young. But where is the evidence that you walk in newness of life? Christ was raised from the dead. Has your life been raised from the dead? You have no guarantee that in that last day you will be raised if you have no evidence of fruit in your life. Are you a fruitless Christian? How many of you would allow an apple tree to continue to grow in your yard that didn't grow apples? I had an avocado tree in my yard. I love avocados. That could have been the forbidden fruit. I don't know. It's called butter fruit. Ooh, I love butter. And then I found out there was a fruit that tasted like butter, and I was in. But the tree never produced avocados. Every time you go to it, the avocados would be eaten up by the squirrels. Now somebody's going to come up after and tell me about how to cure it. Well, don't worry about it, because I chopped the thing down. Because it's no good to me. All I was doing was taking up space, a breeding ground for spiders, and a place for Kellen, my son, to run into. Why do I need it? And God says, Christians... If you're not bearing fruit, my axe is at the root. I'm going to chop you down. Why do I need you? What are you doing for Christ with your life, Christian? How does your life bear fruit? We've been raised to walk in newness of life. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will live 
with him. Finally, this message means this. Christ is coming again. I read this week Acts, and I just thought about the passage. Ye men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up into heaven? Do you not know that Christ, who you have seen ascend, will return in like manner? And I said, let me look at what Scripture tells us about the returning of Christ. Well, number one, it's a serious thing. It's going to happen. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes. All those two men symbolize is that this is God's promise. And God keeps his promises. And said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And I began to think, well, how's he going to come back? He's going to come back as a judge. You know the Jesus that you see on those funeral home fans? He looks so nice. He just went to the barber. He went to Supercuts and he got that cut. And he always looks like Kenny Rogers or Kenny Loggins. I hope Jesus doesn't look like Kenny Rogers. Especially after all the facial reconstructive surgery. He's always holding the lamb. He's always holding the lamb and he's always petting that lamb. And we look at him and we go, that's a guy I'd run all over. And then we hear him preached like. He's a lamb. Be meek like Jesus. I had a woman tell me the other day, she heard me preach like, kind of like what I'm preaching right now, and she said, I wonder what Jesus would do if he heard you preach the meanness and the, the hate that you preach. I said, he would say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. She does not know the Jesus of the Bible. How will this lamb return? Well, let me read it. Here's what it says. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by the gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Jesus is not going to float down on a cloud playing a harp petting a lamb he's coming to judge now don't get mad at me I didn't write this I'm just reading it in the assembly you tell me do you take that seriously there was a great earthquake the earth itself can't handle the coming judgment of God the moon becomes black it becomes like blood the stars fall Nothing is left on its head. 
and people are literally begging to be crushed and killed by an avalanche than to face the judgment of the Lamb. Rocks fall on us. Don't, don't make us face the Lamb. Why? Why would the Lamb be more terrifying than rocks falling on you? Because the Lamb is perfect. He will point to you this very day where you heard this sermon preached to you and you did not heed His warning. He will preach. He will show you that you rejected what you could have had. Had you only humbled yourself and asked him for forgiveness. The great day of wrath has come. Who can stand? The question is rhetorical. Because from those who are judged by God, no one can stand. This is a great day, a perfect day of judgment. Tells us that Christ has seven eyes. All of this symbolism, by the way simply refers to Christ's perfect justice. There won't be any lions with seven eyeballs, but there will be a lion of Judah who judges and sees all things. He knows what you did and why you did it. And he knows what you didn't do. Well, what does that mean for me? It means this, and I think it's pretty safe to say it. You will be judged. He is the judge of the living and the dead. Those who have gone to their resting place have not escaped forever. You will be judged. All must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The number seven in the book of Revelation is a symbol for perfect or from all for complete. And when it says back there that all of the kings and the kingdoms and the rulers and the rich and the poor and the slave and the free, the number amounts to seven. In other words, everyone. All must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, the free, and the enslaved. Everyone. And the question is asked, who can stand? Is there any way to escape Christ's judgment? The Bible says this. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed From death to life. You can escape the judgment. And the answer is right here in God's word. You hear his word. But have you believed? Believe is trust. Believe looks like something. It manifests itself in reality. It looks like this. God help me, for I cannot help myself. You need God's help. God help me. 
two men went down to the temple to pray to God. One was a Pharisee, and he said, God, thank you that I'm a better man than this here tax collector, that you didn't make me like one of those. Stop comparing yourself to everyone else. Everyone else is not your problem. You are. It is your sin that you will account for. I am not mad at anyone this morning. I'm pleading with you. Cry out to God now than crying out for the rocks to fall on you then. Father, help me. I have sinned and against thee and thee alone have I sinned. I've broken your heart, God. You understand that sin is not immorality. It's a personal offense against God. Help me. Save me. I need you, oh God, in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Save me. My mother and my father cried out to you sometime in the past. Save them. But now I'm crying out to you. Save me. I want this salvation. And then finally, beg for God to keep you. Jesus gave a parable. There were some who threw, so, threw seed and that seed was just being sown along a path. And some of it fell on the rock and the sun scorched it. It never did anything. Some of you might leave here today and I'm sowing this seed and you're not going to do nothing with it. You're going to go right back to doing nothing. And here we are sowing the seed. Some, you stick the seed and you throw it out and it, it has a little bit of growth but it gets scorched and it gets plucked and it's gone. After just a little while. You're going to be here for a couple Sundays Maybe a month. You'll come once or twice more in the month. But then your schedule's going to get too busy. So we're just throwing that seed. The seed's going to fall. And then some, we're going to throw it down. And it's going to begin to grow. But it's going to really grow. And it's going to grow up into these thorns. Which represent the pride and the struggles of life. And when the first time God doesn't do what you want him to do, you're out. I desire life. I desire this life, God. Why'd you take my grandfather, who was 95? He took your grandfather because he's old. How come I'm not rich? Probably because God loves you. And the pride of life. Nah, you're just growing up. Yeah, I believe God, but I'm too busy. I got to feed my family. Jesus says, thorns choke them out. But then there are some who yield a crop. They yield. They grew. Imagine you're planting tomatoes and you're throwing them and you're, you're looking and you're hoping, man, I hope that tomato comes up, for those of you who like tomatoes, and here it comes. And it's good. This one's really good. It's tasty. I can eat it. It nourishes me. It's useful for something. 
And some yield 30, and some yield 60, and some 100-fold. Which one are you? You can only be one of four. Only one of four. Three of them are not real Christians. But only those who produce fruit. The prayer to God is keep me. Keep me faithful, Lord. When it's inconvenient to love you, Jesus, make me love you. When I don't want to love you, make me love you. When I don't have faith, make my faith great. You see, salvation belongs to God. And the only thing that you should be crying out is, God, help me, save me, keep me. That's the heart God loves. This morning, I want to give you an opportunity to receive the Lamb of God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? Tara, if you would come up. Counselors, if you would just come down to the front. We're going to stand in just a moment, but I want to give you an opportunity this morning to come for one of the following reasons. Maybe today you need to come because you've never come. You've never received the Lord as your Savior. You don't know how to do it. Maybe you're uncertain. Did you do it right well, Christ has told us to make disciples. And I want to encourage you to come this morning so that you'll let me help you become a disciple of Christ. Maybe some of you have fallen away from the church and have fallen away from God's people. Messages like these should make you very uncomfortable. You should not feel comfortable away from God's church you should not feel okay. God has not made it that way. He has made it that when you are with God's people, there is assurance. But he will not let there be life apart from the body. And you need to come. Because you want to rededicate your life to Christ. Maybe some of you are looking for a church. You say you've believed, but you haven't found a church yet. We would love for you to come. And let us talk to you this morning about knowing Christ and growing in a church. Maybe some of you have never been baptized and you want to be baptized. We want to give you that opportunity this morning. In the quietness now and silence, I don't ask you to say this out loud. If you want to say it out loud, you go right ahead. Would you pray this prayer with me? Holy God, I am an unholy person. I am calling on Jesus, on Christ alone, to help me, to save me, and to keep me. No works of my hands do I bring. 
but simply to the cross of Christ, I cling.